coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Welcome to the show and happy Thursday to you. Let's start with what I think is honestly one of the more intimidating and frightening headlines of the day, and it's that there are pro-Trump websites sharing names and addresses of Georgia grand jurors online. And maybe not even actual grand jurors, but just people with the same name, which could happen, right? And addresses of those people with the same name, just in case they are or are not members of the grand jury that sought to indict the former president of the United States. Under state law, by the way, names are public. Addresses, social media profiles and accounts, which is being shared on uh, these pro-Trump websites, however, no, that's, that's, not, that's not what comes with it. Just names. Just names. Not names and addresses and social media profiles as the Trump trolls uh, are trying to use, but just the names. An opportunity to intimidate? Oh, absolutely. Uh, this from CNBC. The purported names and addresses of members of the grand jury that indicted Donald Trump and 18 of his co-defendants on state racketeering charges this week have been posted on a fringe website that often features violent rhetoric, NBC News has learned. NBC News is choosing not to name the website featuring the addresses to avoid further spreading the information. The Fulton County District Attorney's Office declined to comment. DA Fonny Willis, of course, faced racist threats ahead of the return of the indictment, and additional security measures were put in place with some employees being allowed to work from home. The grand jurors' purported addresses were spotted by Advanced Democracy, a nonpartisan research group founded by Daniel J. Jones, a former FBI investigator and staffer for the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee. He said, It's becoming all too commonplace to see every day citizens performing necessary functions for our democracy being targeted with violent threats by Trump-supporting extremists. The lack of political leadership on the right to denounce these threats, which serve to inspire real-world political violence, is shameful. The article continues, Advanced Democracy also noted that users were posting the names and images of people believed to have been grand jurors on other social media sites. The posts asserted that the jurors had posted on social media in support of Senator Bernie Sanders and Raphael Warnock, former President Barack Obama, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Literally, the basket of deplorables Hillary Clinton warned us about in 2016. Fulton County Sheriff's Department not stating what sort of security measures are being taken, FBI's no comment. Suffice to say, this is, again, just another one of these opportunities for the basket of deplorables to intimidate. And we have to take them seriously, right? After Charlottesville, after January 6th at the U.S. Capitol, you have to take threats from them seriously. It'll be wild for us not to do that, right? Anyhow, let's move on. Another deplorable, Marjorie Taylor Greene, simply an unhappy person. <laughs> this uh, headline from the Jolt a couple days ago that uh, caught my eye at the AJC, uh, AJC. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene blasts camp and floats her vice presidential and Senate bids. Mm, well, we, we know one thing. She, she may, she may be the one anointed by Donald. I mean, she is certainly licking the boots. Good for him to get that vice presidential nod. It, it, it would be a disaster for his already perilous and 
thin hopes of winning the presidency back. But a Senate bid? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. She, as bad as you think Herschel Walker did, and he didn't do well, but he got to a runoff. As bad as you think Kelly Loeffler did, Kelly Loeffler is like a Girl Scout compared to Marjorie Taylor Greene. In a statewide election, that's laughable. Marjorie Taylor Greene wouldn't stand a snowball's chance in hell. Anyway, um, she went on television after the indictments to basically crap on the state. You know, it, it's crazy how people are proud Georgians and proud Americans until they're not, right? Listen to this. You know, I've been home in Georgia for a couple of weeks now as Congress is out on recess. And so I've been talking to my family, my friends, my constituents, and also people I know through business and, and our construction company. And people here in Georgia are outraged. You know, we have some terrible crime statistics in the city of Atlanta. Nope. Murder is up. Nope. Burglary is up. Nope. Gang activity related to cartels in Mexico is up. Fentanyl deaths are outrageous. By the way, uh, the other Fonnie Willis high-profile trial is the YSL gang trial. But go ahead, Marge. Nearly 300% in my district alone. Uh, but here's a statistics that is bothers me so much, John and Amanda, is every single month in the state of Georgia, and I found this out from GEMA and Homeland last week, over 7,200 times a man will buy a child for sex in the state of Georgia. But Atlanta DA, Fulton County DA prosecutor Fonnie Willis is using all of her resources nope. to target President Trump because he has the audacity to run for president again in 2024 and by every single poll is winning the Republican primary and also either tying or beating Joe Biden. And she's charging him with RICO charges, racketeering uh, conspiracy. I'll argue that they should be charged with the same thing. Merrick Garland, Jack Smith, Bonnie Willis, Alvin Bragg, all of them are actually conspiring to with election meddling and trying to stop President Trump from becoming our president again after 2024. Hey, I'll give her credit. At least she's admitting that people in her district are drug abusers. I mean, she did say that fentanyl use is up in her district, right? Uh, listen, and I'm not sitting here like crapping on rural Georgia. Uh, again, that district, my my ex-in-laws live there. I have many good friends that live there. Uh, beautiful country. I love Cloudland Canyon. I love going up there and uh, and camping a good bit. It It's still an endemic situation throughout the entire United States. Drug abuse, whether it's uh, meth, whether it's heroin, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's all three. It's a problem in the United States. But immigration's not the cause of that. We've said that many times before. Most of the fentanyl coming across the border is coming across our border in the pockets or possessions of American citizens. And I also have to give credit to the GOP for this. I mean, what a long way you've come from the 1980s where you demonized and villainized crack cocaine drug abusers. And now you're sympathetic with the rural <laughs> crystal meth drug abusers. Huh. Wonder why there's that swing in empathy. Could it be about race? Okay, back to this uh, interview she was doing with John Solomon and Amanda Head. Amanda Head, the Hollywood conservative who graduated from Auburn University, by the way. Uh, I think this was on OANN, and Amanda had to ask this question. This is where it pertains to Georgia, by the way. And then also they're focusing on President Trump. But I wanted to ask you about, you know, what Georgians can do as far as elected Georgians. Can can Georgia state legislature, can they go into a special session 
suspend Georgia tax funding from Fannie Willis, uh, investigate the investigator. I mean, it, it seems to me that there are a number of tactics that, that could be allowed within the state legislature to push back on this. And by the way, she in one breath wants to complain about rampant crime in Atlanta, which, by the way, statistically, she, they're all off. They're completely off. I mean, since, since the end of COVID and the end of the pandemic, most of these metrics are down, way down, as a matter of fact. But also, uh, Atlanta's crime is out of control. Well, why don't we defund the district attorney's office? Because we don't like the one case that she's acting on that we totally disagree with. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Anyway, here's Marge's answer. Amanda, those are great questions, and I've been asking those same questions all day today. Uh, there's a lot the of debate answers. going on over what can be done. And here's what people in Georgia want to be done. You know, people in Georgia right now, they want a $1.75 gas back. That's what they want, like we had under President Trump. They're sick and tired of the inflation causing their grocery bills or electricity bills to be outrageous. So many senior citizens on fixed incomes can hardly get by month to month with their rent, grocery, and medications. Um, single moms and regular working families are maxing out their credit cards just to pay rent and just to put food on the table. But what Georgians really want from their Republican elected leaders here in our state is for all Republicans to join together and stop this communist takeover of our country. This should not be happening. The people's voice matters, and they should be able to vote for who they want for president. And the, the, the Democrat Party should not be turning into communists and running a regime where they take over the Justice Department and take over uh, uh, district attorney's offices, prosecutor's offices, and try to put President Trump in jail for the rest of his life, giving him virtually a death sentence. Uh, Oh, no, not a death sentence. By the way, Marjorie, uh, gas hasn't been under or around $1.75 for the most part since the late 1990s, and Donald Trump wasn't president back then. But I digress. This is silencing President Trump's speech. He can say whatever he wants about the 2020 election. Mm. Um, that does not change the fact that Joe Biden is president today. Oh, that's right. So his speech is not any reason to lock him up and put him in jail. As a matter of fact, they are election meddling. They should be charged with racketeering and conspiracy RICO <laughs> charges on a federal level. These people need to be removed from office. Bonnie Willis should be disqualified. And oh, people here in Georgia are absolutely sick over what they're seeing happening in Fulton County. Congresswoman, you're a pretty red state, Georgia is. And uh, you've got a governor who's Republican and a secretary of state who's Republican. Mm -hmm. The secretary of state ended up finding a lot of problems in Fulton County during the 2020 election, but ended Didn't. up not putting him into receivership. Didn't. Governor Kemp doesn't seem to have any problem with his prosecution, with his comments today. How do you rate your Republican governor, your Republican secretary of state on this issue of what's going on with President Trump? Teed it right up for her. There you go. You know, Governor Kemp had a great opportunity today. He, he could have been a hero in our state. He should have come out swinging against Bonnie Willis and what she is doing, her abuse of justice, her communist um, uh, <laughs> tactics, and, and their coordination on the federal level with the Democrat National Party. He should have come out against this completely, but instead he took to Twitter to argue with President Trump about the 2020 election. And what I saw in that was I saw nothing but ego and pride. And that is not what I wanted to see from our governor here in Georgia. I wanted to see Republican Governor Brian Kemp uh, coming out against this. Uh, I wanted to see him 
coming out with a plan to stop it. It doesn't matter how he feels about President Trump. It doesn't matter if he's still angry at President Trump for attacking him over the 2020 election. He did a good job in his governor's campaign by not attacking President Trump back. And a lot of Republican voters appreciated that. But today he failed massively on a national stage. And I I would argue that we need to see all of our Republican leaders joining together to stand up against the Biden regime because Americans do not trust our institutions. And that is a dangerous place to be in as a nation. Republican voters want Republican leaders to come together and stop the Democrat communist tactics to stop the Biden regime and to restore our country Uh, back to greatness. That's what they expect from everyone, from myself to our governor, to our secretary of state, to Congress, Um, every single Republican leader. That is what American people want. They are sick and tired of the Democrat tactics, um, the communist tactics from the Democrats, and they're sick and tired of government ruining their lives completely. I tell you what, if you had to do a drinking game where you had to take a shot every time Marjorie Taylor Greene said communist or regime, you'd be hammered. So pathetic. But you know what? Here's the thing. Democrats have to realize that there are folks of limited intellect, not just in Congress, but that actually buy this will because she speaks very simple and she says things that are scary. Not things that are fact-based, but things that are scary. And Democrats have to figure out how to combat that. Uh, Later in the show, by the way, I'm going to have a a political consultant on. His name is Andrew Heaton of uh, Sagamore Hill Consulting. He works in government affairs and campaign uh, consulting. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And uh, I'm going to bring up the whole Oliver Anthony, uh, what is it, the the Richmond, North of Richmond uh, dialogue again. Because I kind of think that this is something that Democrats have to kind of figure out how to channel and how to speak to. Not, Not to stupidity, but just to speak in terms that folks who may not have a firm grasp of the many and voluminous topics that are at the heart of this country's body politic. We have to figure out a way to explain to folks, first of all, that the enemy isn't who you think it is, and also that Democrats have to not be dismissive to the Oliver Anthony types, but more in engaging uh, uh, the Oliver Anthony types. Uh, you can't do anything about the whole, like, you know, do that in a small town crap. I, that was that was just ridiculous, hyper-partisan swill. But I actually think, and I said this yesterday on my show, I think the Oliver Anthony thing is an opportunity that we need to embrace. I think about my ex-mother-in-law, who I love dearly. She's just not a worldly, college-educated, or hyper-on-top-of-the-subject type of voter, but she is a Marjorie Taylor Green voter. Got to figure out how to communicate. And I have to learn how to as well so that we either get that vote or that the other side doesn't. Back after this. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Thursday, second half of the show. At the bottom of the hour, we have Andrew Heaton on from Sagamore Hill Consulting, governmental affairs, campaign consulting, and just a pretty well-learned guy. He's also a big Braves fan. I won't talk baseball with him today, but no promises when he comes back that we won't talk a little bit of Braves baseball. Uh, Nonetheless, I'm talking more today about speaking to the voter, not just the MAGA voter. Again, I think a lot of them are just, (laughs) there's there's no winning. And I brought up my ex-mother-in-law, and I don't don't think that there's any way to, to, to win her over either. But you know what? Her oldest daughter is a Joe Biden fan. It was actually a Joe Biden fan long before I was. And I'm not like a fan. I'm just, you know, you had two choices. So I chose the smarter choice. Um, but I, 
I do think that you have to engage with people um, where you may not think the liberal voter might be. Northwest Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. And she she won, of course, by a pretty wide margin. Marcus Flowers, we've had him on the show before. But Marcus kind of speaks to that voter in ways that I don't think many Democrats do. And you know what? He kind of closed the gap a little bit. Yes, she won, and she won by a, a, a nice healthy margin, but he closed the gap. And I think the longer the Marjorie Taylor Greens go on, the more likely that is to happen. Obviously, ending gerrymandering would do that too, but I digress. I also have to speak to my old friend Eric Erickson, who I think is one of the more sometimes sensible conservative mouths on talk radio because he's not sipping the Trump Kool-Aid, but he is sipping the DeSantis Kool-Aid, so that's not much better. He just actually speaks truth to the entire Trump situation. The guy broke laws uh, apparently, and should face the consequences. He's not really hiding from that. But he also still likes to talk in a really partisan manner. Listen to what uh, an exchange he had yesterday. It kind of had me chuckling. I think both sides are radicalizing each other and don't even realize it because they don't have as much in common anymore. They don't hang out with each other. But we're seeing this on both sides now. How dare you uh, agree with someone on the other side? How dare you try to relate to someone on the other side? I have over time, and it's realized as I've gotten older and my kids have gotten older and the stuff I've been through, I really do feel very strongly that uh, we should be at least able to understand the other side. We can disagree with them. We can think they're wrong. We can even think they're bad, but we should at least understand the way they see the world. And the pro-life movement for the longest time was the best at this. They could give the arguments of the other side better than the other side could give their own arguments. And we're getting further and further away from that. Like, for example, like I wrote this morning, I don't think the left understands. I don't think the Democratic Party understands how radicalizing it was to so many of us on the right when Barack Obama sued nuns to try to force them to pay for abortions, which so many of us, myself included, believe abortion is a euphemism for just murdering kids. It radicalized so many people. The government was trying to force nuns to kill kids, to pay for killing kids. I mean, not really, but whatever. I don't think the Democrats understand how radicalizing it is for even some black and Hispanic Democrats that right now they're trying to put boys on girls' sports teams, force this cultural transgenderism issue in schools. They're not. Indoctrinate kids. It's really radicalizing for people who would otherwise be center-left Democrats. You guys are making that up. I don't think they get it. Whatever. At the same time, I don't think people on the right appreciate how radicalizing it was to people on the left to see a group of people who were willing to impeach Bill Clinton over Monica Lewinsky embrace a guy like Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. See? You've got to be at least able to understand the other side's arguments instead of presumptively implying or, or that they're evil or whatnot. You may think they are, but at least understand their arguments. Nobody wants to do that in this country more. We just radicalize each other. The right radicalizes the left uh, the, by, by a refusal to accept that January 6th, what happened was bad right. in some cases. I'll tell you how the left is radicalizing a lot of people on the right, and, and they don't even realize it. There are a lot of people on the right who do say January 6th was bad, the election wasn't stolen, Donald Trump lied about it, mm -hmm. and yet if you don't then say, well, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden and embrace the Democrats, 
uh, you're still a bad, terrible person who should be exiled from community, according to the left. We didn't do that you to Liz Cheney. radicalizing that is to people on the right you who have that. stood by their values and principles, said uh, the election wasn't stolen, uh, January 6th was bad, uh, Donald Trump shouldn't be president wait, again, no. and still you're vilified by the left because you're not going to say, well, then I guess I'm going to become a Democrat and vote Ooh. for all the Democratic agenda. No, Ooh. you vehemently disagree with the Democrats. That's radicalizing to a lot of Republicans <laughs> who have done what they perceive as the right thing but, and the left still won't embrace them, which gives away the game that it's all about power acquisition. On uh, both sides these days, it's so much of it is about power, power acquisition. Yeah, but Liz Cheney was you. No, you guys did that, not us. Now this is where I get into partisan territory. Yep, exactly. I knew it was coming. I See? do think the left <laughs> is more prone to this than the right. Of course he does. Now, incidentally, in full transparency, I had to splice that up a good bit because he wandered off the reservation a few times and, and brought in a, a funeral of a friend and all that stuff. So I, I just tried to keep it to the point. He tried to argue that progressives and liberals are terrible about even trying to accept the other side because they attacked Senator Chris Murphy, who was listening to this Oliver Anthony song and going, eh, let's not ignore the signs in this song that tell us that there's some unease in the country, which I wholeheartedly agree with. But he can't say the left's worse at this than the right when his own Twitter feed, Eric Erickson, pilloried by MAGAs because he supports Ron DeSantis. I mean, I'm trying to hear the guy out for being somewhat reasonable on the right, and then that hyper-partisan swill, you know? Back after this, The Ron Show on America One Radio. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, so enough about me talking about all this stuff, just ad nauseum to myself, well, and to you as well. By the way, thank you for listening to The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Let's listen to some other people who might actually know what they're talking about, talk about some of the latest headlines uh, in the political spectrum. And I am joined by... Uh, Atlantan, Andrew Heaton, who is the principal and founder of Sagamore Hill Consulting. Thanks for joining me, Andrew. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for being here, Ron. Appreciate it. So a little bit of background. You've uh, you've worked with uh, some folks who are in office now. Um, uh, do you care to name drop like some of your more prominent clients? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the biggest name that your audience will be familiar with, obviously, would be uh, Senator Warnock. There you go. So um, I, I spent time uh worked on both of his senatorial campaigns in both 20 and 22 uh, as well as worked in his state office uh representing uh, outreach for northwest georgia so the 19 counties that make up fulton and everything north and east uh west of that so uh you know spent about the last two and a half years working pretty directly with senator warnock and got to see a lot of the state uh, along the way is this where you get to tell us that you were the one responsible for the cute dog commercials Come on, take that. Uh, I, I, I wish, I <laughs> wish, I wish I could lay stake to that. I, I know well the marketing uh, and ad geniuses behind that and uh-huh. worked with them a lot, uh-huh. but uh, unfortunately, I don't get to claim that one. Does, uh, uh, does uh, Senator Reverend Warnock, does he have a dog of his own? Do they have pets? As of this current moment, I don't know whether he actually does have a dog or not. You know, Senator Warnock has been pretty publicly, you know, clear that 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 Alvin the Beagle is not his dog. Such a cute Uh, dog. And we and and we so it's funny you mentioned that because when we had a campaign event, um, pretty famously headlined by Dave Matthews in this last Mm -hmm. cycle, um, there up in Cobb County. Alvin the Beagle made a special guest appearance yeah. on stage, and, and I was actually the one who got to walk Alvin Ugh. onto stage and handed him off to Senator Warnock. Uh, such a cute dog. Beagles are awesome. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're you know, a little hypertensive, but uh, still, you know, awesome dogs. Uh, Andrew, that's not why I wanted to get you on the show, though. I really wanted to talk just, you know, some of the latest headlines. Here we are in the Fonnie Willis afterglow, and I, like you, I, I watch uh, social media from the rightest of right to the leftest of left and all things in between, and it's just... 
fascinating to watch the dichotomy of opinions expressed on this. Everything from uh, Fonnie Willis impeachment uh, <laughs> proceedings. Now we're seeing uh, some uh, some uh, some Trumpers in the uh, state uh, legislative uh, state legislature calling for uh, attempts to impeach Fonnie Willis now and to unfund her department uh, to. What we're seeing, like a, the latest ABC News Ipsos poll shows 63% of Americans actually say, no, this stuff is fairly important. Is that different than what we've seen from some of the other indictments that Trump's had to endure? Well, you know, I, I think it's I think it's been a bit of a, a roller coaster in terms of how people reacted to the different indictments that we've seen around the country. You know, I think pretty universally, folks thought some of the New York indictments felt fairly light. They felt fairly like they, they weren't sure that that was really a slam dunk case. Or they weren't really 100% sure that that was the best way to go about it. I think you saw a different response to uh, some of the indictments brought by Jack Smith. And I think you definitely you started to see people look at those at those indictments with a much uh, more intense glare of, OK, these are these are actually some serious uh, allegations, serious indictments. But a, a lot of folks assumed that, well, the, the real danger is going to be in Georgia. Mm. I think as we've seen the indictments roll out, um, I think you're right. We've seen a mixed reaction. I think some people have said, oh, is this is this all D.A. Willis has? Uh, that's usually coming from kind of the right side of the, sp- uh, the spectrum. I think the majority of folks look at it, and it is such an overwhelming volume mm. of acts that are included in the indictment that people are kind of having a hard time getting their hands around just – you know, what exactly is what within the indictments. But I think what is crystal clear for most folks is the the central issue that around the phone call and around the movements to install the fake electors and to overturn the election itself just feels like a serious threat. And so just that alone makes people uh, is allowing a lot of folks to take these Georgia indictments in this Georgia case a, a lot more seriously than some of the other indictments. OK, fair enough. Do you think that even if he's not found guilty, uh, if Fonnie Willis isn't able to compel a grand jury to find him guilty, do you think that this just just this sort of blowback will keep the next Donald Trump from even trying something like this? So, well, so I, I think let let's state one thing. I don't know how many next Donald Trumps they are, and I think that's one thing we we have to kind of be honest. And I think. A lot of times we get ourselves worked up that, you know, oh, we are setting a template and now there are just going to be 100 Donald Trumps. <laughs> the fact is we, we've seen a number of politicians try to be the next Donald Trump yeah. and try to run the Donald Trump template. And it doesn't work because they're not – Donald Trump is a unique figure who had a, a celebrity background and had a personal fortune and had years of media exposure and media training mm-hmm. that allowed him to be a, a very unique figure. So we've seen other – politicians try to, to run the Trump playbook. The the best example is Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. Everybody assumed Ron DeSantis was going to be the smarter Trump. He was going to be the, the more politically savvy Trump. And in fact, he's, you know, by all indications, is struggling to even remain uh, relevant within the, the GOP primary. In some polls, he's, you know, settling in third behind Vivek Ramaswamy. So, I mean, you know, I, I think we have to take that as a first issue. Secondly, I think I don't think that these indictments, and I don't think this will necessarily have a chilling effect on somebody trying something like this again, because unfortunately what we're seeing is a, a lot of a lot of the folks, even the ones who are being indicted, indicted in Georgia, indicted in other states, 
are kind of almost wearing it like a badge of honor mm-hmm. and, and are and are using it to just spin even more mm-hmm. rhetoric, to spin even more support and, and gin up anger and anxiety amongst the portion of the base that wants to find fault with these indictments, that wants to find reasons to discount it. Uh, and so I, you know, I think it's the right thing to do for for DA Willis to to pursue these. I want to see a fair trial. I want to see the truth come to light. But whether just this alone, whether he's guilty or not, will necessarily dissuade, you know, what we're seeing right now. I I don't know if that's necessarily what we'll see. And, and to, to to couple on that, to backpack on that just a little bit, I, I almost feel like this is actually part of the GOP DNA to try and cook the books or to try and twist the narrative or to tinker with the rules a little bit so it favors them. Because if 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 for nothing else, we know that without the Electoral College, they wouldn't have the presidencies they've had in the last 20 years. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we, we know that gerrymandering is, you know, deeply embedded in their playbook in states that they have state legislative control of. And they use that not just at the congressional level, but also at the state level as well. We see this happening in Cobb County. Heck, we even see elements of this happening in Fulton County, where some of the northern communities now are trying to detach themselves in some shape, form or fashion from the rest of Fulton County. I even heard Eric Erickson earlier today on his show talking about the fact that the uh, Trump trial is going to cost Fulton County so much money. And do you want your property taxes, your sales tax to go up to cover this cost? And he was speaking to Sandy Springs and Johns Creek and Roswell, you know, Milton, GOP enclaves within the mostly blue Fulton County. I, it, it just doesn't. And even, even now, like I said, you know, we, we see where some state legislators are trying to have internal state investigations into Fonnie Willis. And now we've got the new DA law that, is in Governor Kemp's arsenal. I don't think he seems to have the appetite to go for this, but it's it's there if they want to use it going forward to, again, try and subvert a process that has been steeped in democracy, at least from the outset, and in law and order, and now they're tinkering with it to undo as much of that as possible. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, I think it's important to always understand and remember what is what is kind of the central motivating force behind a lot of these folks in in the way that they govern in the way that they advocate uh from the media heads the way that they speak on issues the guiding force is a distrust and a desire to dismantle government at all levels as much as possible right like they 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 deeply distrust they don't like and they don't want and so anything that plays into allowing them to you know push that narrative further they're going to jump on and so yes with something like this this is you know a perfect example of wasted tax dollars wasted time wasted court resources um you know and then you take it even a step further this is this is you know going after political enemies this is the deep state being used to prosecute uh the political enemies and the political opponents this is just what we've seen in communist regimes so i mean Mm. yeah anything anything they can do that is further evidence for them to delegitimize the current government or really any government because yeah, some yeah, of them go so far you know they they'll chalk up even current elected republicans as part of the deep state mm-hmm. so anything they can use to delegitimize and and show as evidence that see you can't you can't even trust the courts you can't even trust your district attorney you can't trust any of these people yeah. that it, it absolutely plays into their playbook and plays into their into their t- 
talking points. We're with Andrew Heaton. He's the principal and founder at Sagamore Hill Political Consulting. And on that note, I can't help but notice that like, just when you look back historically at conservatism in the United States, this disdain for government really didn't rear its head until voting rights started becoming more sturdy for uh, the marginalized people of color, women. There's a correlation, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's a nice, short, succinct answer. <laughs> yeah, I <know>. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I just, I just think it's so obvious. It just seems like there, there wasn't this disdain for quote-unquote government until somebody else got to ha- have their hands on the levers of power and the, the white male conservative patriarchy is like, I'm not not really comfortable with this. I, I feel like I'm not in control anymore. And I, I know you had to deal with that for most of our existence, but this is really uncomfortable for me. Well, and, and I mean, you, you saw you saw that fracture start to really explode. If you go back, and, and this is nothing new that I'm coming up with, but I mean, if you go back to the, the democratic coalitions that existed in the early 20th century, it was predominantly working class folks. Mm-hmm. You know, you know the, the blue collar, the you know, across the spectrum, kind of organized against the kind of wealthier classes the gop was seen as the party of the the owners and the wealthy class and the democratic party was seen as the party of the common man and this this doesn't just go back to you know fdr and the new deal i mean even as far back as woodrow wilson embracing a lot of the uh progressive policies that were first getting advocated you know by you know folks like teddy roosevelt and some of the early democratic uh presidential candidates of the 20th century you know, that that progressive working man, blue collar ethos was deeply ingrained. But then when you had the 60s come along and you started to see the explosion in advocacy for civil rights, and as you saw this kind of coalition of moderate Republicans and, you know, more civil rights embracing Democrats, all of a sudden that started to shake up. Mm-hmm. That started to shake up and you and you saw the fracturing of some of the party lines some you know some then point to the gop southern strategy right. okay well we can go after the working class in the south if we start to back away from civil rights and we start to embrace states rights and we start to and and it wasn't it, it's not the clear line that some people will advocate obviously there were plenty of some of those old school more segregationist embracing democrats that stayed democrats their entire lives um but you saw it start to change then and that's when that's when it really became easier to to advocate pitting the working class against the government and that and then that started to shift and and to the point now that we see today that it is you know almost 100 percent the argument of the democrats are the party of big government that wants to oppress you and we're the party of the working man which is just very for a lot of reasons kind of a comical line it, well it is when you consider that governmental growth happens in large part under Republican control, Homeland Security, that was a GOP, you know, brainchild after 9-11. The military industrial complex is an extension of our U.S. military, which is a large and foreboding presence, if not for the rest of the world, for us sometimes as well. They're handing off some of their trinkets to our local police departments, which again is an extension of government, but not the kind of government that the right likes to speak against. Well, and, and, you know, we can look at some of the oft- uh, posted graphs that you'll oftentimes see on social media and, and, and make the rounds whenever this kind of debate pops up about who who actually governs better mm-hmm. for middle class Americans who take who actually takes seriously the role of the growth of government 
And historically, over the last 40, 50 years, it was under Republican presidents that the deficits would grow right. and expand. And it was under Democratic presidents that you'd see the deficits re reduce and, and shrink and get more under control. And a lot of that was because Democrats understood you can't just continue to grow and spend on government services without accompanying revenue. So Democratic administrations have tended to take more seriously the revenue piece and and trying to bring it budgets in line whereas republican presidents and you know most probably most famously reagan you know they will cut revenue to the bone and try to starve the beast as they'll claim mm. but then they don't make nearly the number of the same cuts when it comes to spending especially like you said in the military they'll, they'll happily cut social services they'll happily reduce tamp and you know other government programs that help the middle and working right, classes right. but they they're not going to touch the actual largest portion of the wedges which are the military industrial complex you'll have some that will talk about touching social security but most of them for the most part don't dare touch social security so that you know they play on the margins when it comes to spending but they will absolutely cut revenue to the bone and so you know it, time and time again some of the worst offenders when it comes to good governance have tended to be republican administrations if you're just joining us, we are with Andrew Heaton. He is the principal and founder of Sagamore Hill Consulting, handles campaigns and government relations, et cetera, and so on, based here in Atlanta. Big Braves fan, too, by the way. I'd love to have him on at some point in time so we could just talk baseball. But then a lot of y'all would not even want to hear that. So going to take a quick break, come back with him and have more discussion. Uh, we'll bring up the Oliver Anthony song and uh, the political ramifications of a yet another country song on The Ron Show here on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show. Final segment for the day. We're with Andrew Heaton, who is the principal and founder of Sagamore Hill Consulting, Atlanta political consultant, also a dad who's got to go get the kids a pickup here soon. So thanks for the time. I appreciate that, Andrew. We were just sitting here talking about uh, how, the, how the Democratic Party in the early 20th century, the party of the working class, uh, et cetera, and so on. And it feels like in my lifetime, and I've been alive for almost five decades now, that the Democratic Party still wants to be that but somehow the working class has lost the message. Uh, why is that? And, and, and listen, I'm not going to sit here and blame the people. I think the party has some culpability as well. Would you agree? Oh, I, I think absolutely. I think the party has to take culpability. I think, you know, we, we at times struggle. You know, be, when you choose to be the party of good governance and you choose to be the party that takes seriously the nuance that is required for fair governance, but responsible governance, you know, that nuance is not always easy to communicate. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I think we as a party at times have struggled yep. properly explaining in, in quick sound bites in, in ways that make sense in a one minute ad. Bingo. I think some, you know, there have been candidates that have done better with it than others, but I think as a whole, the national party definitely struggles with, with some of our messaging to make it clear, you know, that we are absolutely still the party of the working class. You know, I think over the last year or two, as you've seen the union fights going on around the country and, and you are seeing more uh, organized labor, you know, you've started to see the Democratic Party try to find ways to use some of the messaging that organized labor has been taking advantage of. Um, but I, I think to date, you're right. The, the Democratic Party has for the last probably couple of, one or two decades really struggled with the making their messaging succinct and clear to the working class. But I also think it has something to do with reacting to 
even things like songs, for example. Uh, I mean, obviously, the don't try that in a small town. It was just dripping with with MAGAism. But the latest social craze now is this Oliver Anthony song. And I went uh, into some great link yesterday about this song and how I, I'm kind of cautioning the left against like, don't just brush this off and don't just dismiss it or, or, or be, uh, you know, belittling of it, but hear it out and embrace it because it's not like this guy's not saying a lot of stuff that people are. Uh, I feel like the 2024 election cycle might be shaping up like 2016, where you've got an incumbent uh, party, if not president, an incumbent party who's coming in and talking about the economy. Look how good the economy is, you know, yada, yada, yada. And yet people are spending $4 a gallon in gas and twice as much in groceries as they had, uh, as they did four years ago. And Democrats got to get around that messaging and not do the same thing they did in 2016 or we'll be faced with the same results. Wouldn't you agree? No, I, well, I think you, you're, you're exactly right about when you talk about inflation, that's a perfect example of kind of what we're talking about. So when it comes to inflation, the Democrats are right. Inflation is getting under control. Mm-hmm. Inflation is receding. Sure. It's coming down sure. statistically and and numerically. And so, yes, and and I think that's right where Democrats get themselves in trouble a lot of times is because they look at it and say, but we're right. It's getting better. Mm-hmm. We're right. And so we just need to keep hammering that we're right. And yes, you do need to make sure it's clear that things are getting better, but you cannot discount the fact that, as you just alluded to, Gas is still almost $4 a gallon, and for most people going out day to day, and that's one of the biggest things they see on their drive yep. to work and back is that gas sign as they pass numerous gas stations, and every one has popped up to almost $4, and they can sit there and remember not just a couple of years ago that it, it felt significantly less, even if, again, we sit there and we pull up the facts and say, well, you know, it was actually only 20 cents less 2.5 years ago. Like, that – no. It feels like it was less two mm-hmm. years ago and mm-hmm. three years ago, and that's that's what people make their 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 decisions on is what do I remember? How did it feel? And so for a lot of folks, it still feels like prices are rough, prices are hard, and and things and and in just today, uh, mortgage rates popped back over seven percent again. Yeah, two decade um, high. You know, yeah, and this like these are the realities that everyday people are dealing with. And, and so for us to discount that is, is something we do at our own peril. So if you were working on the Biden reelection campaign or consulting, what would you what would you tell them that they need to do to address that? I mean, they, they can't take the same playbook that the Hillary Clinton campaign had and, and ignore the populist rhetoric that was coming back then from the left and the right. They have to somehow lean into it, don't they? Can't they do that safely? Yeah, I, th- I think because I absolutely think they can. And, and you know, I, I know uh, a couple of folks who are on the national campaign, and I, I trust that they um, are going to move this in the right direction once the campaign really gets up and running. I think you absolutely can do it because there absolutely is a Biden record to run on mm-hmm. that shows progress, that shows moving forward initiatives that everyone can agree on, that everyone will believe are popular and right. The, in, the, the things that the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that the bipartisan infrastructure plan, the kind of money that, that has invested in rural communities, mm-hmm. in rural and rural broadband, in fixing the water and sewage systems in rural counties, um, you know, the investment into manufacturing, like we're seeing here in Georgia, mm-hmm. you know, the the drastic investment into the green economy that it, that you know, and I know it's a popular thing to debate who gets credit for it, but the reality say, is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and we'll avoid that argument for now. But the, the, you, you know, the, the the companies themselves will not deny that the 
that those acts and that legislation has definitely made it easier for them to move forward with these expansion plans that are bringing more manufacturing jobs to areas of the state that just 15 years ago were scratching their head and wondering, what do we do? How, how, how are we going to bring back our local economies? How are we going to bring people back? How are we going to resurrect the manufacturing that was here 60 years ago? And, and so there is definitely a positive record to run on, and it ha- but it has to be balanced with, but there's still more work to be done. Yes, yes. We, we, acknowledge, we acknowledge you're still hurting when you go to the supermarket. We acknowledge that you still are having trouble finding a home loan that you can afford. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so I think there's absolutely a message that balances the work that's been accomplished, but the absolute work that still needs to be done. And that's going to be a tightrope walk because you don't want to tell the American people, by the way, I don't need you to show up in 2024. I need you in 26 and 28 and 30 and 32. This is a, a commitment that right. we have to work on together. Uh, but, but also, you know, not just capitulating to saying, oh, evil capitalism, you know, profits are killing you. We've got work to do. It's, it's, it's a tightrope walk. I'll, uh, I'll give you that. Andrew Heaton with Sagamore Hill Political Consulting. Dude, I want to thank you so much for giving me some time and coming on the show today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good stuff. Thanks a bunch, Andrew. We appreciate you coming on the show. That's going to do it for today's Ron Show. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. See you then.